Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. I'm Boris Peeker, biotechnology analyst at Cowan. In this podcast, we talk about the role of radiopharmaceuticals in healthcare, specifically focused on therapeutic applications and oncology. With me today is Dr. Eric Mitra. Dr. Mitra is an associate professor of diagnostic radiology at the Oregon Health and Science University. Dr. Mitra has a particular interest in targeted radioisotope therapies in oncology, and he's a nationally recognized expert in this area. So welcome, Dr. Mitra. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great. So maybe uh, in the beginning, we just get a little bit of your background and biography uh, before we jump into specific questions. Uh, sure. I have a background um, as an MSTP graduate with a uh, PhD in bioengineering, along with my MD. Subsequent to that, I did a nuclear medicine residency, uh, specifically along with a fellowship in nuclear medicine and PET. I've been in the field for about 10 years, uh, all in academic medicine. And as you mentioned, I do have a specific interest in targeted radioisotope therapies, uh, specifically for oncology. Fantastic. So maybe let's start with a kind of a general overview. Within the radiopharmaceutical field, particularly on the therapeutic side, can you kind of comment what's been going on over the last maybe decade or two, how the field has evolved? Sure. So really, it's um, been quite a revolution over those last 10 years. So uh, as I mentioned, that's kind of as long as I've been in this field. So when I first joined, um, certainly there were radioisotope therapies that were available, although they were relatively few in number. Interestingly, the entire field of nuclear medicine originated with radio uh, iodine therapies in 1941. So it is really the core of what we do, but over the subsequent many decades, it sort of transitioned more to a imaging-oriented field, which is why in the U.S. especially, it's sort of gotten absorbed by um, diagnostic radiology. However, as I I mentioned, there were several therapies that were available, and we did them. But over the last 10 years, there's definitely been a resurgence, specifically on uh, the development of radioisotope therapies, and in conjunction with that, um, the development of imaging isotopes, primarily on um, the PET side, positron emission tomography, which are kind of pairing with those uh, isotope therapies to help select patients appropriately and also to monitor their therapy. So that entire field itself is its own subfield called theranostics, which you might be familiar with. Um, And that's really what's kind of taken off now. So I would almost go so far as to say that the field is becoming a little bit more dominated on the therapeutic side, such that the Uh, imaging isotopes that are being developed are always thought to be uh, how can it help uh, the therapy, not purely just for uh, imaging purposes. Great. So let's maybe talk a little about some of the historical drugs and just curious, kind of get your thoughts on that. Uh, Zevalin and Bexar uh, both Mm. actually approved uh, in early 2000s for uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, but ended up being commercial failure. I'm curious to kind of get your perspective on why that that happened. Yeah, it's a a hotly debated topic in our field as to why that happened. And um, I think the leading contenders uh, that have been discussed are are probably 
two things. One is that those studies, the way that they were initially designed, um, didn't, the primary endpoints weren't for overall survival. It was a um, primary endpoint of progression free survival, um, and which, and a lot of oncologists kind of always hark on th that point that, you know, doing these therapies is not really going to change things overall. However, having said that, many other therapeutic compounds that are used for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma also have similar limitations. So that doesn't entirely explain the story. The other um, aspect to it, I think, is simply that um, it never got fully um, spread out through all of uh, oncology. For instance, depending on where people were trained, they may or may not have had experience with radioimmunotherapy. And then subsequently, when they uh, went on to have their own careers, they may not necessarily think of it. And then the um, two other th things I'll also mention is that there are a large number of other therapeutic options for uh, that group of patients. So this is just one small, small component out of a larger thing. And so it gets mixed in with many other options and therefore just uh, not used for that reason. And lastly is that one thing that nuclear medicine suffers from is that it is an you know independent sort of niche field separate from oncology and doesn't have the presence of radiation oncology and so um, you know it's something that the uh, departments uh, divisions of nuclear medicine in different institutions especially private practice institutions may not be strong may not have these therapies available may not be participating in the discussions with the oncologists on this for instance i sit on several tumor boards for lymphoma. And that's something that I've seen many times over the years is that they're discussing a case and um, no, one, no one brings that up. If I wasn't there to mention it, it wouldn't get mentioned. And if it doesn't get mentioned, it's not gonna get used. So there's many different reasons I think it was a commercial failure. Now, one of the reasons that have been brought up, or I guess it's the two reasons was, just the economic incentive from the physician perspective, as well as just the logistics of administering these drugs. H how significant do you believe both of those reasons are to the, the failure of Zevlin and Pexar? Actually, I think uh, neither of those uh, by themselves are really the, the major reasons at all, because um, I don't know, I might have too idealistic of, of a viewpoint, but I, I don't, I, I, I do think ultimately all physicians want the best for their patients. And so if something really was, you know, very effective, then I think, um, you know, financial incentives aside, um, you know, that wouldn't really be the main reason. And the, as far as logistics goes, again, if, um, if the nuclear medicine division is uh, capable of doing these therapies, it falls very much within, you know, everything else that we do. Having done them myself, it's really not that involved at all. In fact, compared to many other um, therapies that are given by oncology, where it requires multiple visits over multiple uh, weeks or months, uh, even for radiation oncology, same idea, fractionated therapies, um, these are actually a lot easier. If, um, you know, I had a, someone who I was considering for therapy, especially if they're older and frail, it's much easier to just come one or two times and get this therapy and be done. So I don't actually think either of those are particularly strong. And the concern about post-radiation exposure to people around you and keep staying away from others uh, for some time after the treatment, how limiting do you think that is? That is limiting only in the sense of a lack of education. 
So anytime I've talked to a patient directly and explained, you know, what it is that they need to do, they're always, you know, fine with it. And worse comes to worse, in a very rare situations, we can always admit the patients if needed for a few days to, uh, to help alleviate that concern. But even that is only needed in probably less than 3% of, uh, of the cases. So however, having said that, if they don't, are not properly educated either from oncology or, you know, they read scary things on the internet, then yes, yeah, so then it becomes a big thing in their minds. So again, it's one of those things that practically, um, technically no, but practically may have some limitations. We are, um, the, the field, by we, I mean nuclear medicine as a field, is moving more towards a um, clinical approach, such as taken by, again, radiation oncology or, or even interventional radiology, where uh, we see the patients before the therapies, explain everything to them, answer all their questions, also gives us an opportunity to, to see the patients before we do the treatment. And um, that kind of like an initial consultation serves exactly to alleviate some of those concerns. Gotcha. So now as we move, move on from Zevlin and Bexar to the more recently approved uh, radiotherapy, such as Ophiga and Lutathera, uh, what can you tell me about those drugs and why are they uh, more commercially successful? Uh, I think the biggest reason for commercial success that I've been able to see, um, you know, especially uh, like you're pointing out, kind of looking at these different examples, is is really boils down to what the um, efficacy is, and number two is what the um, other options are. So prostate as a, is a perfect example where um, again there's so many different options, just like with with lymphoma, that Zofigo um, becomes kind of mixed and diluted with all of, all of those other things. That's an example where it did show good efficacy and specifically with overall survival, but it also showed a benefit in reduction of pain and showed a benefit in reduction of skeletal related events. All, all, across the board, it was a, it's a good thing with uh, limited toxicity because um, it's an alpha emitter. However, it's de it's definitely declining. It's it's certainly been more successful um, than Bexarazevelin so far, but across the country, I know that it's um, decreasing in terms of use just because there's more and more options that are becoming available. Compare that to Lutathera. Um, that one is again shows really good efficacy in terms of progression-free survival. is uh, is remarkable. Kaplan-Meier curves. But beyond that, there's just not many options. So uh, that's really why it gets used. And over time, as there are more things are developed for neuroendocrine tumors, I'm sure that you know it will start also to get diluted. I think that's just a natural occurrence for, for any compound. What about the kind of the background on logistics? I mean, over the last decade or so, we've seen a, a large number of practice consolidations whether it's hospitals buying oncology practices or oncology practices merging into much larger practices. How does that impact the radiopharmaceutical landscape? Um, I don't really feel that it uh, does too much, except, except probably in a, in a positive way. So for instance, uh, larger academic centers, uh, such as ourselves, um, are, all, are typically on the leading edge of starting these more novel therapies, either you know just before or uh, after approval. And when they merge with um, additional uh, more outpatient center centers in the surrounding areas, it only 
benefits them because now all of those uh, centers also have access to um, all of these things that we do. I think part of the thing that we discuss uh, just in terms of access is knowledge. And sometimes, you know, these, the community physicians don't necessarily know that these are even already available or, or think about it for their patients. And then same, I guess probably the same thing applies when um, oncology practices merge. Uh, this, the larger it gets, the the more powerful it can be in terms of having access to some of these therapies. Gotcha. So let's focus maybe on the, the, the radio part of the radio pharmaceuticals. Just curious to get your thoughts on alpha versus beta emitters and the uh, advantages and uh, unique features of both of those uh, radio labels. It's a kind of a big topic, but I would say that, you know, in theory, alpha emitters definitely have a lot of advantages over beta emitters, primarily, um, as uh, you likely know, that it, it's a much larger particle, approximately 8,000 times larger than a uh, alpha is 8,000 times larger than a beta particle. And so it's very, very destructive um, and and uh, really causes multiple uh, sources of damage, which the cell can't recover from. At the same time, because it's so large and interaction interactive with matter, it won't travel too far, uh, therefore potentially limiting the toxicity to normal uh, surrounding tissue, especially to bone marrow. So those are two, you know, very important theoretical um, uh, benefits to an alpha particle over a um, beta minus particle. Um, having said that, you know, I think practically, again, there's limited data on that. I mean, there's so much that we know from using beta minus particles, uh, again, for over 70 years, that we have a lot of experience with that. And we know that it actually works in practice. And in practice, uh, what can we really say about alpha particles? I would say it's quite limited with uh, radium-223 as really being the only one. And we've already discussed that, that you know, it it's declining in terms of its use. So it's not as if, you know, the one that's available has just kind of blown away every other beta particle. In fact, the excitement around prostate cancer now, as again, you probably know, is around lutetium-177 KSMA, which is back to a beta minus particle. So it's not, I think, as as simple as, as it may sound. Um, the other thing is that in terms of the radiochemistry, um, it can be much more challenging because it is so much larger than a um, beta minus particle that the infrastructure to attach that um, particle onto the whatever ligand is being used to deliver it can be much more. And I think that has also led to the slowness of the development of the alpha compared to beta. Gotcha. What about if we now look at the tumor specifically? Are there particular tumor types uh, what do you think are just in general better addressable by radiotherapy in general, or maybe alpha versus beta particles more specifically? I don't. I don't think so. The way I think about um, radiation dose delivery is it's essentially agnostic to whatever tumor type that it is. Ultimately, if if the tumor itself is sensitive to radiation, which most are, whether that's external beam or a beta minus particle or an alpha. That is not so much, but but I think more important is again the the delivery of the radiation to a specific target on the cancer cell, and that's more on the ligand side of things, plus a little bit on the 
um, actual structure of the molecule which it attaches the uh, isotope because that will also affect the biodistribution. Gotcha. And, and in terms of tumor resistance to the radiotherapy? Uh, again, I don't think it's, it's um, inherently one is more sensitive or less sensitive to alpha or beta. Uh, again, generally speaking, alpha is certainly going to be more effective than beta because it's so much more destructive uh, locally. Uh, but I don't think that there's, as far as I know, that you know one type of tumor type is more sensitive to beta and another one is more sensitive to alpha. Great. So you've mentioned the challenges and particularly alpha emitters and uh, conjugating them and, and, and kind of delivering them. Are you familiar with fusion pharmaceuticals and their platform? Yes. So I'm just curious to kind of get your scientific perspective on uh, fusion. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, again, as I'm mentioning, there is a lot of general interest in alpha particles for, for sure. And Fusion um, is one of the companies that is really kind of taking the lead on this. Uh, so they're targeting um, these uh, tyrosine kinase receptors, which have been looked at in cancer for quite some time. And um, their, I think, main technology, and that part I'm less familiar with is this linker, which, as I said, is the is the one of the challenging things in terms of attaching an alpha particle to a to a ligand. Um, and then beyond that, they've chosen to go with um, antibodies, which is you know an interesting choice because antibodies for uh, you mentioned Bexar's Zevelin in the past. There have been other things that have been looked at. They ha haven't actually been the most successful, I would say, uh, in terms of applicability. There's a lot of challenges with antibodies given their size. It has slower clearance. It has typically lower tumor to background ratios because of the slower clearance and delivery to the tumor. Probably my guess would be that it's um, their choice because it allows them to actually attach to the this large alpha particle. Um, so you know, could be interesting, but I think that's that's overall my take that it's a it's an interesting um, technology. But they're very early still; it's just beginning phase one uh, studies, as far as I know. Um, and so, there's still a lot of data yet to come. So you've mentioned an important point, and this is uh, in, in terms of uh, clearance of the uh, antibody. So one of the key uh, distinguishing elements of uh, Fusion's fast clear technology is the rapid excretion of non-tumor localized uh, radionuclide. I'm just curious how significant do you think that is in the context of using antibodies to delivering the radio payload? Yeah, very important, yeah. So like I said, historically, that's been one of the challenges with uh, antibodies and why a lot of people also um, at, at least I, I know of some on the imaging only side, not therapy, that are using minibodies and, and other things with faster clearance. Um, so I totally agree with your comment that that could potentially be very important. They're, the preclinical data that has been shown in their um, ASCO poster from last year, I believe it was, you know, does show very rapid clearance from the blood and high uptake in the tumors, which, which like I said, are two factors that in the past have limited the use of uh, radioimmunotherapy. Um, but certainly if that's truly the case in humans, in the human data, then that's going to be very exciting. 
Gotcha. And, you know, while we're discussing alpha emitter uh, delivery of antibody, uh, what can we learn maybe from other uh, attempts at doing that? Uh, using an antibody approach? Antibody was some kind of a uh, small fragment of an antibody uh, beyond the clearance. Is there any kind of takeaways that we can learn from either other successes or failures in the landscape as we kind of look at some of the new therapies? Uh, for antibody specifically, I don't, I'm not as familiar with some of the other approaches that have been taken. Again, I, I know that if you look back um, over the over the last 10 years, like we were talking about, there really hasn't been much development on that, which tells me that there is, it's, it's quite uh, challenging. Um, the main development has been on uh, peptides, um, for instance, uh, PSMA peptides or uh, dotate peptides uh, attached to alpha emitters, and that data uh, is looking quite promising. So I feel like that's more where the focus is at. Gotcha. What are your thoughts uh, on combining, let's say, uh, fusion and antibody with other drugs, specifically the combinations they're looking at as checkpoint inhibitors and um, several other uh, DNA uh, repair enzyme inhibitors? Uh, curious, uh, specifically PARPs, curious kind of your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think um, very good, basically, because that's, again, a, a general way that the uh, the field is going and and actually really i'm talking about oncology in general is using a uh, multifactorial approach to target uh, tumors realizing that you know monotherapy can only do so much especially especially after patients are kind of uh, more advanced than the cancer cell is able to kind of you know, get around that particular pathway and then use something else. But if you use multiple approaches simultaneously, then that really ends. And uh, I would, I mean, even uh, again, external beam radiation, uh, radioisotope therapies, targeted therapies, all of these, generally speaking, are, are going that way. So probably that's why they also are kind of taking that approach early on, especially for um, phase one studies these are you know patients by default who are going to, to be much more advanced because they've uh, progressed through different things and i think that's a challenge for these um studies because you know to show efficacy in such advanced cases so um yeah i think that that's um that's a good approach so as uh, the company is doing a phase one study right now obviously in a dose ranging study uh when we do get results uh, what are specific things that, uh, you know, you'd be looking at to better understand the drugs in that phase one data set? Um, definitely, I'm interested in the, in the biodistribution and the pharmacokinetics, because as we've been talking about, that is a limitation of uh, antibodies. And it's one thing to be able to, you know, kill the cancer cell, but if it's going to cause a huge amount of toxicity, then that would be uh, very limiting. And so I'm very interested to see that, and then to see some, you know, at least a little bit of preliminary data to show that there is some some efficacy. So, kind of both those two factors are the are the main thing. Gotcha. And they're including actually imaging analog of their antibody with an Indium 111 as a payload mm -hmm. for imaging. Uh, would that answer your localization question? It would, it, yeah, it would. Um, yeah, so they have to do that, like I said, for this diagnostics approach to be able to select patients properly, but then also to be able to do the dosimetry studies requires an isotope that um, is several 
days long to be able to uh, monitor that. And so India 111 makes uh, a, a lot of good choice for that. Uh, ultimately, one thing I would have liked to see, I did, I don't, I'm not familiar that they are working on it, is a um, pet isotope attached to that same um, uh, antibody because ultimately uh, the this is more on the imaging side but the way the field field has kind of moved is really targeted towards pet and then we're using these um, gamma emitters more for well like for dosimetry as, as an example uh, but not so much for image um, the actual you know monitoring patients and selecting patients for therapy so um, that would be something nice that they could probably add on but I, I'm not aware that they're doing that Gotcha. So uh, for investors that may be following uh, Fusion Pharma and look for and just the landscape in general of radio pharmaceuticals, are there other companies or milestones in the field that you think are important to pay attention to? You know, again, the focus in many ways is on alpha now for, for better or for worse. So really many different companies are, are focusing on that. I would say, I mean, in terms of like, Actual investment, um, the 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 ones that are sh are showing um, a little bit more promise, as I mentioned, are some of these smaller peptides that uh, have proven good clearance. And if you can and, you know attach an alpha to them, those those I think are going to be the main competitors, especially to this radioimmunotherapy field. Um, until until we have more data to really say that you know their fast clear technology is truly what they're saying again in humans i've been i feel like i've been burned so many times they're looking at preclinical data and then it does just doesn't pan out in uh, human data uh, so those are probably the main competitors gotcha and if we look at the practice of medicine in general are there any trends or uh, developments that could impact the use and adoption of radiotherapies in general both positive and negative that we should also pay attention to um you know, in general, my answer to that might be a little bit unexpected, which is actually what should be focused on is how the uh, field itself is sort of managing uh, these types of therapies. So there's, a, there's, a, there's a kind of a ground roots change in nuclear medicine now among uh, physicians such as myself to really change ourselves from just, you know, sitting in a, in a basement clinic somewhere delivering these isotopes and, and reading the scans to actually becoming an integrated member of the uh, cancer care team and uh, really coming out of the basement and, and being uh, part of the whole holistic approach. And th that I think more than anything else is really going to change things because the technology that we've been talking about is really exciting and it's, um, you know, on its own, it's going, it's going to take time, but it will eventually, you know, continue to have uh, great development. Some things will fail and some things will succeed. But until the field itself can, you know, integrate into cancer care, these, all, the, all these approaches are, just aren't going to go anywhere. Gotcha. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Mitra. This was very helpful. We appreciate your time. Okay. Thank you as well. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.